What do we do with our gifts? 1 Corinthians 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body through many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit We were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. What do we do with our gifts? Several years ago, I was on a missions trip with a younger pastor who, though younger than me, he had a significantly higher number of experiences on foreign missions trips. He and I were traveling together, and we had been in one of the Slavic countries, and they had given us an unusual number of gifts to bring home. Uh, They do that to show their love, to show their appreciation. And so we were coming home with kind of a bag full of gifts that these people had given us. And uh, I knew that he had a lot of experience and a lot of background in this. And I asked him, I said, so what do you do with all of these gifts that these people give you? And without a hesitation, he said, oh, I throw them away. And I thought, well, I can't do that. What do you do with your gifts? You see, the the fact that we respond that way, that that's a surprising answer, it represents the fact that we know something ought to be done usefully and appropriately with gifts we receive. In other words, it's it's a strange thing, it's an inappropriate thing, it's an uncomfortable thing, and it just doesn't seem right. If a gift is rejected, or a gift is ignored, or if a gift is misused, we're working our way through 1 Corinthians. And we're beginning a section, chapters 12 through 14, where the primary subject is the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given the church. And we've been asking the question all along, and here's where the question really gets answered. What does it look like to be the body of Christ? What does it look like in this world as a local church just like ours? What does it look like for us to be the body of Christ? The problems in Corinth, you remember, 
there was this disjointed, individualistic, kind of selfish daily living. But what we're going to find is that in the gathering of the worship service, there was a level of chaos. There was a, an elevation of some spiritual gifts over others, and uh, others were just observers, and others were more performers than ministers. And this especially comes into play with what we are going to call grace gifts, what are sometimes called charismatic gifts, the gifts of the Spirit. All of the gifts that come from the Holy Spirit as He equips the church. And in Corinth, it was a circus instead of a worship time. And so part of what Paul is addressing in this ancient letter, and remember that means the Holy Spirit inspired him, the Holy Spirit has providentially preserved this letter for us, and therefore we can read it with instruction and find authority there for us today. That's the reason we work through books of the Bible. And so what the Apostle Paul is addressing is how worship services should be conducted, yes, but more to the point how we should relate to one another as members of the body of Christ, especially given the fact that all of us are gifted, we are all equipped in different ways. And the truth is, there's a warning here. The, the warning all the way through the letter. Uh, there will be several times this morning where I'm going to ask you to look back to previous portions of 1 Corinthians. This is one of them. Look back with me in 1 Corinthians. Look back with me to chapter 11 where we finished a few weeks ago, look in chapter 11 and notice verses 22 and also 27. There in the warnings about the Lord's Supper, there's this problem that they were, they were being individualistic and there was a chaos even in time of communion. And he refers to that in verse 22, but especially there's this warning in verse 27. Look at it where he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And what we found there is that when Paul is using the term body, he's not only talking about the bread, and he's not only talking about the sacrificed body of Jesus, but he's also talking about the body of Christ. So there's a warning here in the way you come and even partake of the Lord's Supper if you neglect or despise or look down upon or don't care about the body of Jesus. Not just the bread and not just his physical body that died and was resurrected, but now his present body on earth, which is church, a local gathering like we have here this morning. So there's a warning in all of this. And what we're going to find is that Despite the diversity that is even represented in our midst this morning, despite all of the differences, all the different opinions, all the different backgrounds, there is to be a unity. Instead of this individualism always popping up, where we all have our own opinions and we all chase after our own agenda, that when we come together as the body of Christ, as the church in this place, let me be specific, as we come together as Calvary, we are to come together in a sense of unity representing Jesus in the world. And for that to happen, we are the body of Christ. And for it to happen effectively, we need to recognize the fact we are gifted. We are equipped. The Holy Spirit has sovereignly done this work. And that's what we'll find before we're through this morning. So look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And let's walk through our text this morning. Because there is a challenge here for us to rethink our place in the church. 
for us to rethink the way that God has brought us into the church together, for us to think through what that means. And Paul, in a, in a sense, this is another example where he's reorienting his readers. The Holy Spirit is reorienting us to understand what does it mean to be in the church, and then if we're in the church, what does it mean to be equipped in the church? So the first thing we find is that he wants them to remember, and he wants us to remember, where we've come from in verses 1 and 2. And Simply, what he says is where we've come from is a, a place of empty futility. There, there's a, there's a, a futility to his words that reflect back upon the way that we lived apart from Christ. Uh, look at it in verses 1 and 2. He says, again, now concerning spirituals, that's literally what it says in the Greek. It doesn't say gifts, it just says spirituals. Uh, some want to translate it spiritual things. Some translate it spiritual matters. Other people think it should be translated spiritual people because he's referred to what it means to be truly spiritual earlier in the letter. Most of our Bibles say spiritual gifts because that's the subject he's going to dive into. So that's not inaccurate. But the most precise reading would really be now concerning spirituals or spirituality, you might want to read it. It says, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now, let me just suggest to you, you know that I have the spiritual gift of sarcasm. So I really like this, I really like this passage because what he basically does here is it's, it's, he kind of sticks the knife in a little bit, the sarcastic knife, because there was a contingent in the church. They were so proud about how much information they had. And once again, he says to them, you shouldn't be uninformed because they believed they were informed. They believed they had all wisdom. They believed they had all knowledge. We're going to see that before we're through. But he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. Verse 2, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. The language there has this idea of that was your routine. That was the way you lived before Jesus. Your, your life, you were being led around. There was a power that was working in your life. And the manifestation of it was an idol that couldn't speak, that couldn't hear, that couldn't move, that couldn't do anything. And so the idol, in and of itself, the idol was impotent. But you were being led by forces. You were being led by some spiritual entity. You see, there's a, there's a spiritual realm here that, in a sense, you could say it's the unseen realm. And in the empty futility of their previous life, there were forces at work. Obviously, he's referring specifically to the evil spirits that were behind pagan worship. Again, look back with me in 1 Corinthians. Go with me briefly to chapter 10. You remember this passage? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, look in verse 19. He says there, What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You see, that's the way you used to live. And the idol was nothing, but make no mistake. And this is, the, this is the deep irony and the sadness of it. That what you chased after is meaningful, was completely impotent and powerless, and has no significance. But in the futility, you are being led astray to chase after that which could not in any way help you or benefit you. And that represents empty futility. And notice it says you were led astray. You were helpless. 
We've studied this summer about the doctrines of grace, and there's a sense here about free will. Everyone wants to say, well, I have free will. Everyone has to have free will. Sure, free will that is in bondage to sin. And here, the language that Paul uses is that in your pagan days, you think you may have had free will, but you were being led around, as we would say it today, you were being led around by the nose. You were under constraint, as it were. And yet the mystery of this, don't lose this, the mystery is that even though you were under constraint, you still are responsible. You have a choice to make. You're willful still. And there's such a sadness to this. The futility of it is astonishing. I don't know if you heard the story this week about the, the U.S. soldier in South Korea who was frustrated with army life and who was frustrated with the restrictions upon him and evidently his performance had been subpar and he'd had to deal with those issues and he was fed up with the regulations. And so he was fed up with regulations. He was fed up with restrictions. And so this last week he defected to, let me check my notes, North Korea. And we hear that story and we think, what a stupid decision. What, what an empty, futile choice. I'm reading a book right now about spycraft and about the Cold War and spies in the Cold War and how many Western traders ended up finally defecting to the Soviet Union after causing damage as spies in the Western culture and how empty and futile and gray and meaningless their life was when they landed in the Soviet Union. That's futility. And yet, make no mistake, in contemporary terms, we are tempted to be led astray by things that are absolutely useless in the broad picture of things and that will benefit us not at all. In fact, the opposite is true. It, these things could damn us eternally. It's a life of empty futility. And that's where we've come from, Paul says. But let's re-examine what defines us, because he wants us to see this in verse 3. Would you look at it? And what defines us is quite simply the lordship of Jesus Christ. The lordship of Jesus Christ is what defines the members of the church, the people who belong to Jesus, the people who are redeemed. What re defines us is the lordship of Jesus Christ. And there's a radical difference now. He brings that out in verse 3 in rather graphic terms. In verse 3 he says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now what's going on here? I can't take all the time that perhaps some of you might want to go through all of the options. Some believe that in the ecstasies of pagan worship that were being brought into the Corinthian church that people literally were cursing Jesus in other tongues. That's a possibility, and some believe that. Uh, it's possible that this is a reference, some believe, to the forced denials of persecution. The problem with that view is that persecution really didn't start until the next generation. In other words, the, the government forcing someone to say that Jesus is accursed instead of Jesus is Lord, that didn't come until a generation later. Some believe that Paul is remembering his painful past. Remember Paul's career before he became an apostle was he was a Christian hater and a Christian hunter. And part of that goal was to get people who had identified with Jesus to call him accursed, basically. This is a Jewish term, by the way. But it's very likely, I think, 
that this is just an extreme hypothetical contrast to what it means to say Jesus is Lord. You know, the Bible, again, the Bible doesn't allow, in many cases, a lot of nuance, a lot of, a lot of distinction, a, a lot of different coloring. It's pretty black and white. Jesus is Lord, or Jesus is accursed. And the troubling reality out of verse 3 is that that's the way you're living your life. You, as your fundamental core conviction, you either live your life under the lordship of Jesus Christ, he is Lord, not others, not Caesar in the ancient world, not your own desires, not your own pleasure. Jesus is Lord. Or if you choose your own way as a rebel, you essentially are saying Jesus is accursed. And the defining difference, again, is the presence and work of the Holy Spirit. You see that? It says if the Holy Spirit is in your life working, you're not going to live a life that says Jesus is accursed. And on the other hand, if you truly live a life that says Jesus is Lord, it's the result of the Holy Spirit's gracious work. To follow anyone else as Lord and Master is to curse Jesus. This is the level of His absolute exclusivity, the absolute demands that He places upon us. He is an exclusive Lord. He is not some kind of tribal God, localized, individualized. He is the King of the universe. And when you serve Him, when you yield to Him, when you believe in Him, when you repent and trust Him, then you do so in acknowledging His absolute Lordship. So regardless of what experience you've had, this seems to be implied, there were people in Corinth that had all kinds of weird experiences and trances and ecstatic statements and all kinds of pagan worship. And the question is, who do you say Jesus is? And how does that show up in your life? False systems will always have a deficient view of Jesus. This is the reason the New Testament tells us in 1 John 4, 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And so the issue is, the theologians would say it this way, your Christology, your theology of Jesus is he the Son of God come in human flesh? Did he die on a cross for sins? And is he, watch this, is he the only way to the Father? The only way to be made righteous? There's nothing optional in any of this. Jesus is Lord allows no sense of taking him or leaving him. It, it, it doesn't give us the opportunity to choose on our own terms. It's not an offer. It's not a gentle knocking at the door. It's the demand from the king of the universe to bow our knees and acknowledge him for who he is. Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, wake up, you are not. And that's part of what Paul is trying to say. And the truth is, this will be costly. It will be costly to our own desires, first of all, as I just implied. But in many epochs of history, it will be costly in the way we live our lives in our community. And I think we've lost this, although we're beginning to sense it, perhaps again, because we have the, the background of Christianity and its influence in our own nation. And yet the reality is, as some have begun to call this, we now entered into a negative world, whereas it used to be, you know, when Calvary was built, when we built this building, they filled it right away, because part 
of the reason. It was obviously a gospel-centered ministry, but part of the reason was if you were an upstanding citizen, you know what you did on Sunday morning? You went to church. That was the world that your grandparents grew up in, generally speaking. If you're an upstanding citizen, generally speaking, you went to church. might not have been a Bible church. It might not have been a Christian, truly Christian church, but the truth is you were religious. We have passed through now a negative, perhaps a neutral world where it didn't really matter, till now your neighbors look at you like you're insane when you leave on Sunday morning and head for worship. You see, there'll be a cost if you truly live your life acknowledging Jesus as Lord. So how can we do that? Well, we do it by God's grace, and that's what we find in this text. So look at it at the promise and the provision as he equips us. As we do that, let me talk to you about this term, grace gifts, charismatic gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you some examples in 1 Corinthians already. Uh, They'll be on the screen. Look in in chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. Let me highlight this. This is what Paul has already said in this letter. He says to this church, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace, note that, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. So this is this troubled church in Corinth that we've seen that is all of these crazy things. And as Paul introduces the letter, he says, I know that you're equipped. You're gifted. You're gifted particularly in areas of speech and in knowledge. Verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any, and here's the word, any grace gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says a similar thing in chapter 7, verse 7. He says, but each has his own grace gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So in living out this difficult life, of manifesting that Jesus is Lord, as it becomes more difficult, how much more important is it for for us to grasp the reality that we are equipped and prepared by God himself in the way he has gifted us? So the next step in this text, beginning in verse 4, is for us to realize who equips us. For us to realize who equips us. And look at the verses with me. Begin in verse 4. Now, there are varieties of grace gifts. That's the word again. There are varieties of grace gifts or gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers all in everyone. Who equips us? The triune God. The triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. One God, eternally existing in equality in three persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's who equips us. Paul is very specific here. He uses these terms, these words, that even echo back into what you and I would call the Old Testament. For example, he uses the term God. In Greek, it's the word theos. You see it in verse 6. But that's the same word. Theos is the same word that was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for Elohim. It has to do with God the Father. You also have in verse 4, you see that? You have the word spirit. This is the Greek word pneuma. 
And it is used by the Greek translation of the Old Testament to translate the Hebrew word ruach, which has the idea of breath or spirit in the Old Testament. And then if you look in verse 5, you see the word Lord. Now, we read this somewhat generically in the New Testament, but we do that to our discredit. We've already seen Jesus is Lord. But the word kurios in the Greek is used by the Greek translation of the Old Testament to translate the unique name of of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. Remember, we've talked about it. When you see in your Old Testament, Lord in all capital, it's Yahweh, the personal covenant name for the God of the Old Testament. And here, that same word that's used by the Greek translators to describe this ultimate name of God is used of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is Kyrios. Jesus is Lord. So who equips us? The triune God of heaven. Now, to say that, it's almost like a, it's, it's like a Sunday school statement that we just, oh yeah, we, we get that. You recognize how phenomenal that is? The God of eternity, the triune God, we can't even understand the Trinity, right? The mystery of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit intentionally and specifically has equipped you to deal with what you deal with. He's equipped you to be part of the church. This is who equips us. Why has he done so? Well, the reason is in verse 7. Look at it. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The common good. That's the reason. So the reason we're equipped is for the good of the church. Where is the focus in all of this? Where is the emphasis? Don't misunderstand me this morning, but listen carefully to me. It is not on the world around us. There are implications for that without doubt. But that's not the focus here, and it will not be the focus through, verse, through chapter 13 and through chapter 14. And it's also not primarily on the universal body of Christ. Because I'm not sure what good my spiritual gift does for believers in sub-Sahara Africa. The emphasis, when Paul wrote this letter, and the emphasis of God's word for us is for the local church. The common good Yes, the common good of the gospel will serve the world. We understand that. The common good of the gospel will bind us in heart and intention and in agenda to believers all over the world. Yes, that's true. But the primary common good is the person that's sitting three rows behind you. The person that's over there on the other side of the church. Maybe they're on the other side of the church because they won't speak to you. I don't know. But the common good is gathered right here. It's the people we break bread with the first Sunday of every month. It's the people we work together with on projects and and in ministry. It's the people that God has put us together with in the church. This is the common good. And the reason we are equipped with spiritual gifts is that evidently on our own, we would mess it up even more than we do. And so we need to be equipped in order to be the body of Christ for the common good. So we remember where we've come from, this empty futility. We need to re-examine what defines us, the lordship of Jesus. We need to realize who equips us. It's the triune God. And we need to recognize the reason why. It's for the common good. And what this looks like, let me just give you two very quick examples. It looks like, first of all, the one another's. 
You know that term in the New Testament? We're called to love one another. We're called to forgive one another. We're called to instruct one another. We're called to counsel one another. That has a sense even we're called to correct one another. We're called to, watch this, forgive one another. We're called to serve one another. And I could go on and on and on. That's what this looks like. That's the common good. And left in your own strength, you'll likely forego and bypass that responsibility. But in your spiritual gift, you are equipped to love in that way. And the reason that's so important, the reason we know it's so important, is because in a couple of weeks we're going to land in chapter 13. And believe it or not, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians is not given to us for weddings. Not that it's wrong to use in a wedding. But chapter 13 is given to us, the love chapter is given because the church at Corinth needed to recognize that the primary water that they were to swim in, can I say it that way? As they used their gifts with one another, was love. They were to love one another. And that's what we'll see in a couple of weeks. Well, then there are some examples here. Some examples of these grace gifts. And there's nine of them that are listed and we've read verses 8 through 10. I won't read them again for you. But the point of all of this is, let me just, let me tell you what the point is not. And some of you are going to be disappointed, but just if you'll hold on for a few weeks, all right? Paul is not addressing and answering the questions that we always ask about this. Because I read healings, I read tongues, and I want to know, where are they? And those are the questions we immediately ask. And especially if we've come through the last 150 years of evangelicalism, especially in America, then these have been issues of confrontation and controversy and disagreement. And so we want to know. We want to know about all of these things. And we're asking these questions. In this text, Paul isn't concerned about that. And when we jump to try to answer that question, here's what happens. We miss the issue he's addressing. And the issue he's addressing has to do with the way any of the gifts were used and are being used. We will get there before we're through over the next three or four weeks. We'll have to address the issues that we don't see the kinds of healings. And by the way, we don't. We don't see the kinds of healings that we saw in the apostolic age. And tongues and some of these things. We'll talk about that. But we're not going to jump there today because... That's not what this text is about. This text is essentially Paul informing and correcting and training this local apostolic age church in Corinth and the other churches of his day. And when we jump to these contemporary questions that are important, don't misunderstand me, but when we jump to those questions, look for those answers in this text, we miss the point that Paul is making. You'll see the point if you'll turn with me back to chapter 4. Would you look back there? As you turn there, A.T. Robertson, a great Greek scholar, said, they prided themselves chiefly on the gift which had become a source of confusion and disorder. He's talking there about the gifts of, gift of tongues, as we'll see. But let me show you the real problem that was happening. Paul has already addressed it. In chapter 4, look in verse 7. Look in verse 7 of chapter 4. He says, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 
In other words, as if you earned it yourself. That was the problem. When we ask ourselves, well, is this gift abiding today or is this gift valid today? We miss the point that Paul's saying, wait a minute, what's your attitude about whatever gift you have? Because if your attitude is, look at me. Look what I can do. Look what the Holy Spirit has given me, especially if it's a somewhat showy gift. This is what was happening in Corinth. Paul says, if it's a gift, how do you boast? You say, well, I'm not sure that's really what was going on. Go over to chapter 1 and see it right here in chapter 1. Look at the last verse, verse 31. So then, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. It was a problem of pride. And this letter, this whole letter is corrective to this. We've seen it before. It's this individualism that says, you know what? I'm good on my own. Look how great I am. I'm better than you. I don't need you. Because after all, look at all that God has given me. The issue of the spiritual gifts is rooted in the common good, not in our own individual contentment, satisfaction, self-pleasure, not on our own idea of being satisfied with ourselves, our own sense of accomplishment. No, in humility, we serve others. That's the root issue. These grace gifts are given for the common good. And when we function in them, you know what happens? The church is edified. The church is blessed. There is a witness to the world around us. There is unity in the church, not division. And you know what else there is? There's a sense of joy. There's a sense of joy when we recognize we belong to one another. Our ministry to one another is empowered by the Holy Spirit. We may not even agree on all things, but we are together in the local church in all of our diversity. You want to talk about diversity, inclusion, and what's the other one? Equity? Yeah, you want to talk about diversion, inclusion, and equity? Look at the local church. With all of our diversity, with all of our different perceptions, we are all included and there's equity there. There's an equality that God has built in. Well, let me move on to the conclusion there in verse 11, back in chapter 12. Look at it with me, because here's what we find. We find, first of all, that the Holy Spirit's gracious gifts, they show that, first of all, no one is omitted in verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit. He's talking about that list of gifts that's represented. By the way, it's not a comprehensive list. There are only nine gifts that are listed in verses 8 through 10. There are probably around 20 specific spiritual gifts that are listed in the New Testament. So he's just giving a random list, if I could use that phrase. And he says in verse 11, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, we can't go any further before I note that the point of this, at least one point, is the Holy Spirit is a person. It is not a force. It is not something we speak of as it, like I just did. He is the person. He appoints. He chooses. He determines. He wills. And it is all by grace. It's all undeserved. That's the reason it's called, in the Greek, a grace gift. I don't know if we ever received a gift we deserve, but specifically, this kind of gift is a gift motivated by grace. 
by God's favor. And therefore, you get the implication? There's no occasion for pride or boasting. Our gifting should not focus on our status. It should not imply spirituality or maturity. This entire letter is written to rebuke that. Listen carefully. Get this point. Because it began in chapter 1. It's been in the background all along, and now it's going to be highlighted through chapters 12 through 14. Gifts themselves don't show maturity. The way a gift is used shows maturity. We all recognize this. Some of the most gifted people in our culture are athletes. How many of them are really mature? Some of the most gifted people in our culture are politicians. How many of them are really mature, are noble, are upright? Giftedness itself doesn't define maturity or spirituality. It's how that gifting is used. But make no mistake, chapter 11 says the Holy Spirit does this with everyone who is in Christ. No one is omitted. Secondly, the Holy Spirit's gracious gifts show that no one is useless. No one is useless. Look at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Now this is next week's sermon. Basically, next week, the rest of the chapter unpacks verse 12. So I won't preach next week's sermon. Other than just to say this, it's not the goal for us to be the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. To borrow from a prolific author that I happen to know very well, be who you are. We are to be the church. We are to be the body of Christ. We don't have to try to be the body of Christ. And what it means to be the body of Christ is recognize that the Holy Spirit has equipped us, every one of us, teenagers, widows, dads, elders, ushers, Sunday school teachers, every one of us. The Holy Spirit has equipped us to serve the common good. And what we're going to find next week is no one is insignificant. No one. And that's an encouraging message. And when we exercise our gifts, what this does is it makes the church look like Jesus to the world, which after all is what we're supposed to do. No one is useless. And if you feel as though you are, don't miss next Sunday. No one is useless. No one is admitted. And then in verse 12, everyone belongs. Look in verse 12. Excuse me, verse 13. Verse 13, everyone belongs. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, that is the body of Christ, Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink. The word is a deeper word than drink. It has the idea of being irrigated or saturated, and it reminds us of Jesus' promise in John 7 that there will be rivers of water, that all of us were made to drink of one spirit. And once this is accomplished, once this is accomplished, this represents Jesus' presence in the world. And the presence is the built-in diversity that Paul is emphasizing is part of what is glorious. It's part of what shows the world this is what Jesus cares about. Not slavery or freedom, not Jewishness or Gentileness, 
Not race, not socioeconomic position, not background, not gender. What Jesus cares about is representing his life to the world around us in humility and in sacrifice. And don't you see, at the very least, as I move to a conclusion, at the very least, that's the glory of the gospel. The older I get, the more I recognize how vastly incapable I would have been to save myself. I prove it every day. And the glory of the gospel is in the grace of God, even in His giving these grace gifts to us through the Holy Spirit, but especially in His giving Jesus to us. And what we call the good news, that this is available for anyone, any any struggler, any rebel, any sinner who will humble himself and say, yes, Jesus is Lord. I am not. My sin makes me guilty, but I believe that Jesus lived and died for me and conquered death and resurrection. And I put my hope and faith in him. And that makes all the difference for rebels like us. Can I ask this? Has it made a difference for a rebel like you? Have you repented of your sin and put your hope and faith in Jesus and Jesus alone? Because this is the God we acknowledge who is eager to show grace to whoever will repent and believe. Jesus said it strongly. He said, anyone who comes to me, there's no way I'll cast them out. What glorious good news that is. Now let me end this morning with an example, really kind of a, an experiment almost, a word picture. Um, we have this hurricane coming. I've lived in Texas. It doesn't look like much of a hurricane for us, but anyway, they say it's coming. But obviously our greater fear living here, our greater concern is wildfires. I mean, you all have lived through some of them. Some of you have experienced incredible loss as a result of wildfires. And so if you think about, just for a minute, in your mind, uh, you'll find the reason for the analogy pretty quickly, I think. But let's think about uh, firefighters. Uh, Firefighters are near and dear to our hearts. Where would we be without them? We'd be in danger, right? And so if you think about a fire department, think about a fire department. You've got different titles in a fire department. You've got the fire chief. You've got the captain. You've got the engineer, which, as I understand it, usually is the one who's driving the fire trucks. And then you have firefighters. So you have different titles in a fire department. You also have different abilities. Some are rookies, right? Some have spent their whole career. Some have experiences with wildfires. Maybe some have experiences with structural fires. You have all kinds of training. Some have likely have specialized training. Again, some perhaps have just learned on the job. So you have all kinds of different abilities and experiences. You have different tasks, right? I mean, the fire chief, he's to oversee all of it. He even has to manage things like budgets. The, the, the captain is to direct the affairs, particularly of a particular station. The, the, the engineer is to drive. The, the firefighter, he may, he may be training others. The firefighter may have a responsibility to maintain equipment. It's my understanding that firefighters love to eat and to cook. So some of them may be the cook, I've heard. 
But listen carefully. It's obvious, isn't it? They all have the same job. If you were to ask the captain, what's your job? And he told you, I manage budgets. He's missing the point. Even if you ask the cook, what's your job? If he says, I'm putting food on the table, he's missing the point. The fire department has one job, to fight fires. All different titles, all different abilities, all different backgrounds, all different tasks, individual tasks, one job to fight fires. You're a believer. Maybe you have a title in the church. Maybe you don't. We have all kinds of different backgrounds and experiences and abilities. We have different roles that we play. Even to come together in a service like this takes all kinds of people fulfilling different roles. But you know what? We only have one job. And Paul has talked about it already in 1 Corinthians, where he says in chapter 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. To do everything for the glory of God. That's our job in the church. Different roles, different titles, different abilities, different backgrounds, different tasks, all one job for the common good is to represent and demonstrate the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Father, It's astonishing to try to get our minds around your infinite wisdom and power. Your infinite wisdom that planned our lives, the omniscience to which you know every corner of our being, and then your power to create us and make us and then give to us gifts that are precisely what we need to serve together in the church. Lord, while there are mysteries and questions about these issues, the fundamental truths are inescapable. That you have called us into relationship with one another to serve one another in love with our gifts so that together we might be the representation of Jesus right here at the corner of Chino and Islay. Father, give us wisdom, give us commitment, help us grow deeper in our understanding, help us chase after these truths, help us pursue humility, never pride, teach us what we need to know, help us to rethink our place in the body of Christ, help us to run from pride, help us to, to, to kneel at your feet, Jesus as Lord, as our Master, and help us recognize that we're there together with others in the church. The ground all level at the foot of the cross. And that 
you have a specific eternal purpose for every single one of us. No one left out. No one omitted. No one useless. And everyone belongs. Thank you, Father, for this glorious truth and for your incredible, amazing grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.